Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning, everyone, and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Pray that we would hide it deeply within our heart, that we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're one month into a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and also one month into a capital campaign to build a permanent sanctuary, one that will not only create more room for us to worship in by doubling our seating capacity, but will also be a beautiful space architecturally and aesthetically. Pope John Paul II once said that there's two things that the secular world can't deny about Christianity, and that is the beauty of our architecture and the beauty of the lives of our saints. Now, as Protestants, we don't have saints in the same sense as our Catholic brothers and sisters, but I appreciate what he's saying. He's saying there's a very real undeniable and mysterious beauty to a faithfully lived Christian life. And some of you, maybe many of you are Christians because of that, because you met someone who lived a powerfully beautiful Christian life and you were drawn to, and you wanted what they had and and you became a Christian. And the beauty of architecture is similar. It captivates us and allures us and helps awaken us to the goodness and to the truth of God. Peter Kreeft, who's a Catholic theologian, he's written a great deal on beauty and he grew up Presbyterian in a home that emphasized the differences and the disagreements between Catholicism and Protestantism more than our similarities and agreements. And he remembers going to New York City with his family on a sightseeing trip and going into St. Patrick's Cathedral there in New York City and asking his dad this question. If the Catholics are so dreadfully wrong, how can they build such beautiful churches? Which is a good question and a fair question. 
And I hope that someday people will ask us, people who don't believe as we do, about that very thing, about our sanctuary. Because as Dr. Kreef says, beauty like truth and goodness is divinely designed to be food for our souls. So it's exciting to have the opportunity to potentially build something that can be food for people's souls. But in order to do so, we're going to have to pray. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's what the Lord's going to have to do through all of us. And we're also going to know, need to know how to pray, which is why we're considering the Lord's Prayer this fall. So today we come to the statement, thy kingdom come. So what does that mean? And why does it matter? Two points this morning, the priority of praise and then the importance of the kingdom. First of all, the priority of praise. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the Lord's Prayer is more than just the most well-known collection of words ever spoken of in the English language. It certainly is that, but it's also more than something simply to be memorized and recited. It's a guide to all prayer. Any and everything that we ever need to say in prayer is categorically contained in this prayer. It's meant to be scaffolding upon which we build our prayer or trellis that guides our prayers as well. And notice here that there's a particular order. There's an address, which is our father, two little words. And I preached on these two little words several weeks ago. If you weren't here to listen to that, go back and listen, because in those two little words contains the essence of what Christianity is. So there's the address. And then there's six petitions, three God word petitions about God, and then three petitions or requests about us. And and really, the prayer here, what it does is it, it begins with this notion of the importance of God in the order, but also in what's being said. The first of the petitions is, hallowed be thy name. And Josh talked about that last week. And he told you two things. He said that this request is really about God's reputation and his fame in all the world, that God would be known and recognized for the weight and the significance that he has. And secondly, he said, the only way that that's going to happen in the world is as it first happens in the church that those who believe in Christ and follow after him, that they give and acknowledge the weightiness that God alone possesses. When we begin to live and to think and to speak and even to feel as though nothing matters more than God, that that's when that will begin to happen. And that is the prayer, but it's also the problem. The problem is that that's not exactly what our lives often look like. Functionally and actually, we all too often give so many other things a greater weight than God. And what is the result? Well, if we're to read through Matthew chapter six here, what Jesus would say the result is is anxiety because he goes on to speak about anxiety right after he speaks about this prayer. And we're an anxious people and we live in an anxious culture. You all know the stats. One third of U.S. adults experience an anxiety disorder some time in their life. 20% of U.S. adults are experiencing that at any given time. 25% of women are experiencing that at any given time right now. And I I mention that because I want you to see the importance of the order of the prayer and why it begins with God, because it does so as an antidote to the anxiety that Jesus speaks of immediately after this prayer. Right after offering this prayer to the disciples, he begins to speak about money and eating and drinking, our physical bodies and clothes. So wealth, health, beauty, and the pleasure that we derive from each. And then he goes on and he says, do not be anxious, which might sound to you like a dad yelling at his son or his daughter, just relax when they step up to the plate to try and bat in little league or something. I can tell you from experience that doesn't work because no one can just relax when they aren't relaxed. No one can just not be anxious when they are anxious because it's not a voluntary thing. Anxiety is something that comes upon us. 
There's a physical aspect to it. When we perceive danger, our autonomic nervous system kicks in and starts pumping adrenaline through our body so that we can be prepared to fight or to flee. And some of you live in that state perpetually and almost always. You're always on high alert from some danger that you perceive to be near or some loss that you perceive to be imminent. And so it's not something that you've chosen. And because of that, it might sound cruel or even simplistic or dismissive for you to hear Jesus say, just don't be anxious. But here's why it's not simplistic or it's not dismissive. And that is because, of course, anxiety isn't voluntary. And Jesus knows that. But it is formative in part. Inordinate and persistent fear is something that can be formed in us when time after time after time we hear or we see or we're told this is what matters most. This is what is to have the most weight in your life, whatever it may be. The things that Jesus speaks about, wealth and financial success as adults or even academic success as children. We, we tell our children, do well, do well, do well in school, get into the best university possible, get into this degree in order that you can graduate from this university and then make the most money that possibly can be made. Or even athletic success and athletic ability. Parents, you cannot sign your child up for every known select team under the sun and take him or her to several hours every night of practice, pay for private lessons, by an adult whose, whose life and vocation is to teach children to play sports like only adults can. And then when they get to the free throw line or they get up to the plate, yell, just relax. And they're going to be able to relax. Because what they've heard time and time again and over and over in their experience is this is what's important. This is what matters most. This is what is weightiest. And, and so if they begin to fear the consequences of failure in that moment, it wasn't voluntary. It was, however, at least in part formative. And the only way that they or we won't be overwhelmed by anxiety in that moment is that there's something else in their life that has more weight. And they know in that moment that that thing that has more weight can't be lost. And the same goes for anything, for friendships, for romance or marriage or work or your appearance or your physical health or anything that causes involuntary anxiety in you. The economy, the political climate, your reputation, your kid's social reputation, whatever it may be. The only way in and through and beyond anxiety, along with the clinical and professional help that you may need, the only way through it and beyond it is to have a counterformation that is repeatedly and continually impressing upon your heart and your mind and even your emotions. This is what matters most. This is what is most important. And this is something you can't lose. And this is what the Lord's prayer does. Because before we get to anything about us or any requests about us, our, our daily bread or our needs or our sin or our enemies, before we get to any of that, Jesus insists, in fact, he commands us to focus our minds and our hearts upon God by giving him our attention, his name, his kingdom, his will. Effectively, he's saying, in order to not be anxious, you have to pray. But in your prayers, you have to begin with praise before any petitions. And in fact, that's what the book of Job is all about. It's our Old Testament reading, and you probably know the story of Job. It's one of the more famous books in the Bible. At least you probably know its basic premise, which is that Job suffers inordinately. 
for reasons that are unknown to him or not fully revealed and arguably experienced the worst, the three worst types of loss all at the same time. Catastrophic financial loss. In our day and age, we would say career ending loss. And then secondly, the death of a child, which some of you know personally, and which I've been told time and time again is the worst type of loss that you can experience in this world. And Job just doesn't lose a child. He loses all his children at the same time. And then finally, he gets sick, very sick, pus bursting boils covering his entire body. And Job doesn't curse God as his wife tells him to do. He also doesn't admit that some imaginary sin that he didn't commit is in a very simplistic way, the source of of all of his sufferings. He doesn't do that even though his friends tell him to do that. But he also doesn't praise God. What he does is he rushes into the presence of God for the vast majority of the book. He rushes in and he says, why? Why have you done this? Why am I suffering this? You've got to fix this. You've got to to do something. You've got to give me some sign or some reason why. So defend yourself to me and explain yourself to me and do something for me. And I want you to know that those things that he prays for the vast majority of the book, they're, they're not wrong. His questions aren't inappropriate or unfaithful. They're not wrong. They're just in the wrong order. Job begins with them. He begins with himself and, and his hurt and his life and his needs and his problems. And then they become what's most hallowed in his heart. And I don't know if he was anxious, but I know he was angry. And I know he was increasingly bitter and confused. And so too are some of you, in part because you're praying like Job. And at the end of the book, finally, this is our Old Testament reading, God shows up. And he, he doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't defend himself to Job. He doesn't talk to Job about Job. He talks to Job about himself. And notice what happens. All of a sudden, Job stops complaining. He stops making demands of God. And his soul is quieted. The angst and the anger and the anxiety is all gone. And he seems to get healed internally. And why? Because God reestablishes and reasserts this pattern and the order that the Lord's prayer offers here by making Job start again and saying, begin with me and begin with praise and begin with adoration of me before petitioning me. And that little shift makes this massive difference. It makes all the difference. And God says, do you see my greatness? You see my power. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with mane? Do, do, you, do you see my concern and my kindness and my giving to everything, including you? Do you see it? You see my glory. And then all of the self-focus and self-pity drains out of Job. And friends, it is not hyperbolic to say, and you know that I like hyperbole, so it's not hyperbolic to say that all of our problems come from not starting with God and forgetting who he is. God leads Job to praise him and Job's pain goes away. And the same can happen for you, regardless of what it is that you're facing. The loss of marriage, Job effectively loses his marriage throughout the vast majority of this book. Or sickness or death or disease, rejection, being misunderstood, being lonely, All of that Job knew and more. And finally, he says, I had heard of you, but now I see you. 
I see you with the eye of my soul and I see how you matter more than anything else. You matter more than my pain and my problems and my questions. You matter more. And so I repent. I turn from everything else. I turn from all of of my hurt and my loss and my pain and I turn to you and my glory and your glory and he's healed. Because praise alone can heal you and form you into an unanxious, unbitter, resilient, and joyful person who can endure the worst that this world can do. Praise gives God a weightiness in our soul that can't be moved. So do you know that weightiness? Do you praise God? Do you begin with praise or do you just petition him? Start again and begin with praise and see what happens. It's point one. But part of our praise, point two, has to be of God as king. So number two, the importance of the kingdom. Jesus, here in our gospel reading and throughout all the gospels, he speaks continually about the kingdom, but he never defines it, which is somewhat problematic because he gives very, very little explanation. And the reason that what results is there's all sorts of disagreement and confusion about what the kingdom actually is. So, for example, is it a future reality or is it something present now? The answer is yes. Is it spiritual and of another world or does it touch upon and impact every aspect of life here and now? Yes. But can it be identified with any nation or any political ideology? This is an important one. No. But will it change a people and will it change a nation politically when it comes in full or in in greater extent? Yes. So are we all confused? Yes. But that's okay because that's part of the reality of it. Because when Jesus explains it, he does so in metaphors and stories and parables. And I wonder why. Like, just tell us, Jesus, just tell us what the kingdom is. But he doesn't. And he seems to not do so for the same reason that Flannery O'Connor would never summarize the meaning of her short stories. People always ask her, what what does your story mean? And she famously said, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. You tell a story because a statement would be inadequate. And that's what Jesus does. Seems to agree with Flannery here. Because he often says, the kingdom of God is like, and then he tells a story, which I've printed one of the stories for you here from Matthew 13, this parable where he says, the kingdom of heaven, which is what he says in Matthew, kingdom of heaven is like the grain of a mustard seed that grows until it becomes a large tree or larger than all others. And the birds of the air come and make their nests or their home in its branches. And Jesus's original hearers, they knew their Bibles better than we do today. And so they would have known two things, at least immediately upon hearing his words. One, they would have known that the birds of the air was shorthand for all the Gentile or pagan nations of the earth. And secondly, They would have known that in the Old Testament, there was this great worldwide tree that the prophets often spoke of. You find it in places like Ezekiel 17 and 31 and in Daniel chapter four. But it's not only the Old Testament prophets that speak about this cosmic world tree. So too do all of the other ancient Near Eastern religions of that time. They speak about this tree that connects heaven and earth, this tree that even makes heaven on earth and somehow the God or the gods are connected to our place of life because of this tree. So there's this, there's this tree and it's this place of, of order and beauty and safety and nourishment and all the basic needs of life are met in and through this tree. It's this common universal religious symbol. And in Daniel chapter four, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this tree. It's as if the prophets are saying that part of your religion and that part of your myths are true. 
In Daniel, or in, in Daniel 4, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and Jesus borrows his language. And so much is similar. The tree is larger than anything else. It's visible to the ends of the earth. The leaves are beautiful. The fruit is abundant. And all the beasts of the earth and all the, the birds of, of, the, of the sky and the air, they find their home there. It begins small, but then it grows large. And then Daniel comes to Nebuchadnezzar because nobody else can interpret the dream for him. And he comes to him and he says, you're the tree. And your kingdom is the tree. And the God of of the heavens and the earth, the God of Israel is going to cut you down for your pride, but then he's going to reestablish you and your rule over all these nations. And Jesus in this parable in Matthew 13 is saying, that's what I'm bringing. So much more than just forgiveness of sins. So much more than just individual acceptance with God and an internal peace that comes from a personal knowledge or personal relationship with God. And so much more than a new internal spiritual power to live a godly life after one comes to faith. Yes, all of that, but I'm bringing so much more. I'm bringing a new world back to earth and a new power and a new rule over everything. I'm bringing the very presence of God back here. And it's going to touch upon every aspect of life and culture. And there's no part of human society that isn't going to be transformed by it because I'm making earth a garden again and a place of spiritual flourishing, but also physical flourishing and human cultures will flourish, but also all environmental flourishing. And friends, that's what we need. That's what we need and want far more than anything else, far more than what Jesus talks about here of money, food and drink and clothes, or even simply forgiveness. We need a new world and a new king in charge of every aspect of life and reigning over it in his goodness and making it good because he's good. Which is exactly what Barbie the movie is all about. How many of y'all, I'm serious, How long did you think it was going to take until we had a Barbie illustration here at All Saints? How many of y'all have seen Barbie the movie? Don't be shy. Raise your hands. $1.5 billion have been made by this movie. It's the biggest global earner ever for Warner Brothers, the highest grossing U.S. film here to date and this year. And people love it, critics and fans alike, because it taps into something very deep in us. And it does so through something that's silly, which makes it all the more subversive. And really what it's arguing for is a new world and a new rule. And so what is this new world and this new rule? It's one in which women are no longer taken advantage of by men and harmed by men. And we know the statistics on that as well. That one out of every four women in the United States is sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. That 15% of college women say that they're forced to have sex in a dating situation. That only 28 or so percent of any of these abuses or these crimes are ever reported. And that's what Barbie is about in some ways. It's about a world in which misogyny and and damaging forms of patriarchy are ended, where men no longer objectify and exploit women, where that has ended. And women are appreciated and valued for more than just their bodies. They're appreciated and valued for the totality of their being, which is something that, that all people, and Christians in particular and especially, should cheer and demand and champion. But there's more to this world and its rule than just that. It's also one in which men and women can't flourish together. And the underlying message of Barbie, according to Mike Bird in his review, is that men at their worst are predatory patriarchs. And the best thing that men can do for women is to make themselves irrelevant. That's why there's no strong yet gentle man in Barbie. There's no, there's no wise, decisive, capable, or good man in the movie. There's no hero, only heroines. 
Ken is a, a bumbling, effeminate dolt. And, and that's it, because there's no vision in Barbie's world for men and women in their unique differences to complement one another and flourish together and to find greater and more beautiful life together. Women in their unique differences, they just they have to seek significance and strive to, to thrive apart from men in Barbie land, while men do so in kingdom. And it sounds silly, but it's saying something so very serious, which is we need a new kingdom and a new rule. But I think it's fascinating that the creators of Barbie, they don't want the kingdom that they're offering. In fact, they're, they're not married, but they've lived together for years. Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, they make this movie together. They've made movies together for years. They've lived together as husband or male and female together. They've had children together. And they're, they're not, they don't even want the kingdom that they're offering in this movie but they're right about this. And we need a new kingdom. We need a new world and we need a new rule. And God's salvation is a kingdom, a new world in which he is present and his grace and his wisdom and his goodness and his power rules over all and governs everything and takes everything to its perfect end and it's complete flourishing. And for us as Christians, we believe it's a tree, but it's a tree that Jesus himself was crucified on, that he was cut down just like Nebuchadnezzar for the forgiveness of our sins and acceptance with God. But he was also raised up, not only for that, but to bring heaven back to earth, to bring the very presence of God back in order that every aspect of human life might flourish. And the way that he's primarily doing that now, he's done it in part. He hasn't done it in full, but until he does it in full and he returns, he's doing it in part now through you. The primary way he answers thy kingdom come is through you, the church. The church is not the kingdom, but it's the primary means by which the kingdom comes now. So his rule has already begun in you if you believe in Christ and follow after him and have been baptized into his name. And this means a couple of very important things. And here's where I close. Number one, it means that God's salvation is not first and foremost about you, but it's about the world of which you are a part But God's salvation is not about making you happy or restoring everything that you want and need right now. It's about restoring the world to the goodness and beauty that was lost. And that's begun, but someday it will happen in full. And when it happens in full, everything that you need and everything that you want and all of your happiness will be given. But it's not first and foremost about you. And secondly, if God's salvation is a kingdom, then every single part of your life matters, including your work, and what you do and where you live and where you go to school and what aspect of society and culture you're engaged in, it all matters because God's kingdom seeks to extend to that area of life in and through you. And it all matters. None of it matters most, but all of it matters because it matters to God and he matters most. So if salvation is a kingdom, then education matters and finance matters and politics matter and the environment matters. And being on boards matter and and being a gardener matters and mowing yards matter and immigration matters and homelessness matters and the poor matter and marriage matters and being a mother matters and music and art and architecture matter. The buildings that we build matter. They don't matter most, but they matter because they matter to God and he matters most. And he's already extended his rule into your life and into your heart. And he seeks to extend it further into the hearts, lives of others and everything in and around us here in this place. So seek first the kingdom of God. Begin with him. Start again. Begin your prayers with him. I say this all the time. Use the Psalms. Use the Psalms. 
Tell God who he is and what he is using the words of the psalm as they describe him. Seek him first and seek to live and to love, as we say, as the body of Christ in Austin and for the world, as members of his kingdom. And wherever you are and whatever you do, he will use you to bring greater life and flourishing to that part of this world where you live, where you work, and where you go about your life. Because his kingdom has come and it is coming and it's coming in and through you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as the Lord directs us here that your kingdom would come. And we know that it will. We know that it is. Uh, We know that, that it is coming eventually fully and completely. But even now, Lord, might it come more fully in and through us in this place. Thank you for each and every one of the people who are here today. Bless them, keep them in their life and relationship with you and use them significantly in the life of the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.